daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, China issues the central number one central document charting roadmap for rural development over the course of 2024. In a sign of escalating tensions in the Middle East, U.S. carries strikes on militia targets in Iraq and Syria. And we're going to take a look at the ongoing farmers' demonstrations spreading across the European Union countries. And EU countries strike a deal on landmark artificial intelligence rulebook. So to listen to this episode again, or to catch up on our previous episodes, download our podcast by searching "World Today." China has unveiled its number one central document for 2024, outlining the priorities for the country's comprehensively promoting rural revitalization. The document、uh, encompasses six parts, including ensuring food security and forestalling any large-scale relapse into poverty. It also covers improving the development of rural industries, strengthening rural construction, and enhancing rural governance. As the first policy statement released by China's central authorities each year, this document is seen as an indicator of policy priorities. So to better to have a better understanding about this document, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier spoke with Dr. Yao Shujie, Chengkong Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. So, Professor, what are your main takeaways from the number one document for this year regarding agriculture, rural areas, and farmers? What are the policy priorities for the year 2024? Yeah, it's not surprising that the Central Committee has now also focused the first、uh, central document on the three、uh, known area: agriculture, the farmer, and also the rural area. Now, this is、uh, this year is particular because、uh, compared to the previous documents, the first document in the previous year, this year is more detailed. Technically, it's fairly, fairly detailed、uh, how to do it,、uh, including a, you know food security, including、uh, land construction, including、uh, the the rural business, and also the integrated development between、uh, the county, the big city, and the rural area, and farmers' income and the employment, including also population change. So it is a、uh, Why it is very detailed?、Uh, because China has accumulated, accumulated many years of rural construction, agricultural development, and the farmers' issue. So、uh, it's a continuous and long, long-term effort for the Chinese Communist Party and the the Chinese government to lead the rural area for the so-called socialist construction.、Mm. So uh, uh, this year. Uh, I'm very pleased that some very detailed policy are、uh, rolled out, and it will be just another turning point in the new era.、Uh, we cannot see this is the final document. It actually, each year you will see another first document related to the, the to this particular area, which means it is very important for、uh, the rural agricultural sector and the farmer to become prosperous as part of the Chinese. A modernization process,、mm. and this year's document prioritizes China's food security, setting an annual green production target of 650 billion kilograms. So, what are the barriers that could stop China from reaching this target, and how can they be overcome? Well, you can see that over the last ten years, the Chinese production of gram and, and food have increased steadily.、Um, it is very surprised why China can. Is able to maintain this level of high production in food and in other related product, but one of the most important thing is about the technological progress. The technology has been applied to every field in the rural agricultural sector, and、uh, you you tell me how China can、uh, maintain this high growth of uh, development. Uh, the answer is also technology. 
how to employ the modern agricultural technology in every aspect to make sure that land productivity and labor productivity in the agricultural sector will be improved steadily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the key point is agricultural technology, and if it's actually included in many uh, aspects, including farm machinery. Including the the way how land can be constructed into the so-called high yield high yielding land high quality land, and also the concentration of uh, grain production in the in the northern part of China and also in the in the plat area in central northern China and including the eastern and southern China to some extent.、Mm. And seed production is of great significance to China, given this immense population and resources invested in ensuring the food security. So, could you elaborate more on that, Professor? Yeah, seed production is is the starting point of agricultural production.、Uh, not only not only the seed of of rice and wheat and cotton and every other、uh, agricultural product. The first starting point is high quality seeds. If the seed is high quality, then the the yield uh, of uh, per per area of agricultural land will be also increased. So yield production, sorry, seed production in China have been processed in the last thirty or even forty years,、uh, particularly rice and wheat, which are the key agricultural product、uh, to 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 ensure food security.、Mm-hmm. And、um, I I think there are still a lots of potential. Uh, first of the first of all, the new variety of seeds will be still、uh, to be created, and the traditional high quality seed variety they will be、uh, you know more applied to more area、uh, in the cultivated land.、Mm. And can you highlight some other key areas of Chinese agriculture and rural development, Professor? What will be the main focus of agriculture and rural economy this year? The key point is to guarantee that the you know the cultivated area would be guaranteed, so that there will be enough、uh, area to be grown with rice and wheat and, and corn and and soybeans and other key product. And secondly, I think technology will be applied to、uh, all the land that have been identified. And thirdly, there will be more modern inputs such as、uh, high quality fertilizer, pesticides. And also high quality,、uh, you know, locally driven、uh, agricultural machinery to replace labor,、mm. uh, because agricultural labor will be continue to decline,、uh, because more and more population are moving to settle down in the city and work off farm. So in, in the future, there will be less people working on the farm. So the 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 long term perspective is that how. To use less people to produce more good on the land,、mm-hmm. so per capita per labor land area would continue to increase. Per capita land, you know, agricultural output would continue to to be improved. So,、uh, technology input, material input, those are very important for the agriculture sector to become modernized.、Mm-hmm. And the document also calls for efforts to invigorate the rural areas and businesses. So, what are the steps needed to attract more talents and more funding into the agriculture sector? Yeah, first of all, you have to identify what kinds of agricultural business or rural business that could be,、uh, you know,、uh, you know, invigorated.、Uh, I think as the urbanization process increases, as industrialization process increases in the big city and medium-sized cities, there is a need、uh, for the trickle-down effect of、uh, industrial production, business operation from the city to the countryside. So that、uh, the small town and small、uh, in a village, they would have the、uh, you know business which. Uh, basically, can be divided into two components. The first component、uh, is the business to meet the local need. For example, like agricultural services, like、uh, commercial activity,、uh, also e-commerce, and so on and so forth. The other area is that the rural and the village level they would be、uh, able to take some sort of、uh, you know industrial、uh, component production for the big city, the big industries. 
So these are the two areas, and how to, uh, you know, import a relative advantage of the agricultural and rural area where they have more space, relatively more land than the than the city. Uh, but on the other hand, there are lack of uh, capital and technology. So tech, capital and technology would be driven by uh, government-guided policy to improve the living condition of the countryside. So more and more educated people, they are willing uh, to work in the in the village or the township. So uh, the, the village and township level, they have to improve not only the employment opportunity, but also they have to improve the living conditions, uh, particularly the services, uh, education, health care, and, and also uh, all people's caring home. So these are the very compli- complicated uh, uh, you know, issues that the central document actually make it very detailed how to do these things. Mm. And I, I hope this year will be a new starting a, a year to modernize uh, the, the countryside with a fairly clear vision and fairly clear strategy. Mm, indeed, and it also focuses on stepping up measures to increase the farmer's income. So what do you think could be done on this front, Professor? Well, you can see the first of the farm income, it depends on two aspects. The first is the agricultural income. Uh, for example, uh, the farmers, they grow uh, grain and, and also vegetable and other agricultural products. So the, the central government have uh, clear uh, indicating the prices of rice and wheat. They will be maintained at a certain level and will be increased over time. So by increasing the, the, the procurement prices of uh, rice and wheat, that to some extent, it reduced the so-called risk in agricultural production and also improved the income expectation of the agricultural uh, in the population. And secondly, there will be some sort of non-agricultural employment in the, in the village and township level. So that once people have more employment, then they would have higher income or, or farm employment, they have higher income. And certainly, I think it also mentioned the you know the personnel particularly the teachers and also the healthcare sector uh, you know personnel their their wages and their income would be uh, protected by the county government the central government so more and more people are willing to work in the local uh, clinic and hospital and also the schools that also improve the the income perspective for the people living in the countryside there are many other ways of increasing income, of course, like, for example, like improving the rural infrastructure, like improving the, the agricultural production environment, and also, uh, you know, some investment from the city to the countryside uh, with some sort of financial uh, benefit, for example, the interest rate, the uh, accessibility to the finance and credits, they will be, uh, you know, become increasingly more friendly uh, to the farmers and also the agricultural sector. This would be a very comprehensive package of how to improve rural income. That was Yao Shujian, Changkun Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back. You are listening to World Today. The U.S. has carried out further strikes against the Houthi group in Yemen. Sunday's action came a day after uh, after joint U.S.-U.K. strikes on Houthi targets. The U.S. has also warned that it will take further actions against the Iranian-allied groups in Iraq and Syria. Last Friday, the United States struck targets in those two countries in what the U.S. claimed was a response to the death of three American soldiers in a drone attack in Jordan in late January. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has described the strikes on Friday as, quote-unquote, the beginning, not the end. 
So joining us now on the line is Dr. Wang Jing, associate professor with Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Professor Wang, let's first of all talk about the strikes on Houthis、uh, in Yemen, because over the past a few weeks there have been a few rounds of this kind of strikes against、uh, the Houthis. In your observation. Have they、uh, achieved their quote-unquote stated goal of crippling the Houthis' capability in terms of launching attacks against those, you know, merchants or commercial ships transiting in the Red Sea?、Uh, I think from the expression of the United States,、uh, it、uh, suggests that the United States retaliation attacks against the Houthis' targets uh, uh, strongly weakened、uh, Houthis' capabilities uh, and. Uh, Uh, willingness to continue attacks against the ships、uh, with close connections、uh, of Israel, of the United States, and Britain、uh, in the Red Sea. But unfortunately, let's be frank. I don't think these United States attacks against the targets of the Houthi targets actually weakened the Houthi's capability or strongly weakened the Houthi's capability. Houthi, Yemen Houthis still have the capability to continue their military action、uh, in the region. And also that、uh, Houthis attacks、uh, by drones, by the missiles, by the rockets against the the, the, the naval forces of the United States and the UK in the Red Sea continue. Uh, so uh, uh, what we have to know is that the United States, although they hope to deter、uh, the Houthis' capabilities and the military actions through the, their own、uh, strikes. It actually、uh, not lead to the very successful de- deterrence.、Uh, actually, that who sees willingness and who sees、uh, inside Yemen the, the, the sentiment for the supporting the escalating of tension、uh, is growing. So I don't think that the United States strikes in the against the who sees targets in the Yemen now brings more possibilities of peace in this region. I think it's、mm. to the opposite. Actually, lead to more uncertainty and crisis. Hmm. Of course,、um, no one needs a reminder about all those、uh, civilian death and you know hu- humanitarian tragedies caused by this、uh, long-going、um, civil war in Yemen. When we talk about that particular country in in the Middle East, and of course, the civil war in Yemen has gradually calmed down in most recent years, following a ceasefire in April of 2022, I guess. So. Professor Wan, to those civilians in Yemen, what do you think this joint U.S.-U.K.、Um, operation strikes would mean? I think for the Yemen civilians, it means uh, uh, new possibilities of disasters. Because actually, from uh, 2011, especially from 2014. Uh, when uh, when the uh, Yemen civil war erupted,、uh, the Yemen humanitarian crisis began to、uh, escalate, and also that、uh, after the war between Yemen Houthi and, and Yemen government, and also between Yemen Houthi and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, that、uh, the humanitarian situation in this country become more and more strained. So that is why、uh, it leads to the attention of international society, and also、uh, that is why that many、uh, powers in the international society, just like China, hopes to bring the different sides together to seek the very possible solutions under the assistance of, under, under the direction of the United Nations to find the peace possibility. But unfortunately,、uh, although, as you mentioned, and after 2022. Especially after 2023, when Iraq and Saudi Arabia started their rapprochement,、mm. uh, Iran, yes, more, yeah, the, the more possibilities of peace now now come. But then, with the United States, their、uh, attacks, it brings Yemen back to the status of war, back to the status of conflict. So that is why I think it is very bad news for the humanitarian、uh, situation inside Yemen.、Mm. Now, some people say whether in the case of these uh, joint uh, attacks on Yemen or in the case of the U.S. strikes on Iraq and Syria, they are all in violation of the international laws. Do you agree in this point? Why or why not? Of course, the their attacks against the Iraq and、uh, Syria、uh, again are strongly violate violating the international rules. 
because actually, no matter how the United States defines their actions and how they legitimize their military strikes, we have to know that uh, Iraq and Syria, they are independent states with the uh, widely respected sovereignty and the territory integrity. So without the, uh, the authoritarian of the United Nations, very clear uh, authoritarian of the United Nations, no country has the right to violate the sovereignty and the, the territory integrity of the other country, including Syria and Iraq. So the United States face their military strikes against the targets in Iraq and Syria on their own investigation. They, we don't know how they collected the information. We don't know how they analyzed the information. We don't know how they made the conclusion. So if they continue like this, this means that the United States could attack anyone without the permission of the United States, without respect of the local mm. and original state sovereignty. So I don't, so I don't think that the United States is obeying the international rule to the to the authorities. They are violating the international rules. Mm. Authorization from the UN Security Council is indeed a very key matter here. So actually, after the outbreak of this, you know, Israel-Hamas war. Sparked some hostility across the Middle East. U.S. President Joe Biden has actually time and time again said that he wanted to avoid a full-blown regional war or regional conflict. And nowadays,、uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is once again making a visit to that region. So, with that in mind, Doctor One, how would you look at Jake Sullivan's latest comments that oh, these latest back-on-back actions are? "Quote unquote," the beginning, not the end. I think maybe United States has a willingness to bring peace、uh, back to the region, but this peace was based upon the United States' own understanding. I mean, the peace means that Israelis still have the、uh, the willing the, the freedom to continue their military operations. United States will continue to provide military assistance, very key major military assistance to Israeli military action. And、uh, that the, the original countries, especially the Palestinians, they should continue to suffer the the losses and the suffer the wars imposed by the other original countries. So this would be the tragedy. So I think every、uh, most majority, absolutely majority of the states in the Middle East, they understand that United States plan will not work, and United States should do more to persuade Israel to give up military actions in the Gaza Strip and to bring peace back to the region. But given the fact that the、uh, United States still hopes to reconstruct the, this regional order、uh, based on their own understanding, I don't think United States、uh, leaders or their、uh, state secretaries' visits to this region will work. Maybe I don't. I think they will bring more dangerous、uh, possibilities rather than peaceful possibilities in、mm. this region.、Uh, yes. Okay, so by the way,、uh, the final question before we let you go: Is there any sign that Iran is getting into a direct、uh, confrontation with the United States? Let's be sure that the possibilities of the direct confrontation is growing. Let's be frank,、uh, given that the Iran-linked military groups and the militias and、uh, are confront are confronting very strongly with United States military personnel in the Middle East, but、uh, Iran and United States they are still very rational and restrained from the total war. So I think the regional country and international society together will find a way out. Will help the regional country to pacify the tensions right now. Mm, indeed, because really, in many ways, if we take a look at the current tensions and all those kinds of hostilities in the in the Middle East region, really, I think the root cause for the current tension is this ongoing war in Gaza between Hamas and Israel. So I guess until the very day when this particular crisis is addressed from the root cause. Uh, there is a limited chance or possibility regarding a dining down or coming down of the regional tension. But thank you very much. That was Dr. Wang Jing, associate professor with Northwest University in Xi'an, China. You are listening to World Today, and for more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. We'll be back after a short break.
You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. EU countries have agreed on an extra 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine. Ukraine says it is expecting to receive the first part of this particular aid package worth 4.5 billion euros in March. Hungary had opposed the deal in the days leading up to its announcement. Brussels had actually blocked Budapest's access to some of the European Union's funds in a move to push Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orbán to give in. Ukraine has become increasingly desperate to secure funding from the West as aid from the both the United States and the EU face political delays. So joining us now on the line is Professor Cui Hongjian from the Academy of Regional and Global Governance, Beijing Foreign Studies University. So thank you very much for joining us.、Um, first of all, how much does this、uh, latest additional package matter to Ukraine? As we know, after a long time、uh, gaming、uh, within the European Union, finally, it looks like a, a so-called agreement between all of the member states、uh, to support the long-time uh, assistance uh, towards uh, Ukraine. Especially of as we know,、uh, this.、Uh, 15 billion euro will be uh, used uh, by the、uh, European Union to provide some、uh, non-military assistance. So I think it's a very, very uh, key uh, condition for the uh, final uh, agreement from、uh, Hungary or some other、uh, other member states.、Uh, but as we know, in the、uh, next、uh, four years,、uh, totally uh, 15 uh, billion uh, euro. Uh, it is not,、uh, I think,、uh, important uh, or also a、uh, uh, significant support for Ukraine. As we know, since the、uh, conflict between Ukraine and Russia keep going on,、uh, indeed,、uh, there will be a large and a larger、uh, requirement from、uh, Ukraine side、uh, to get some more assistance from Western countries.、Uh, but of course, I think it has some.、Uh, More political,、uh, symbolic significance for Ukraine at this moment, because as we know now, because of the、uh, political gaming、uh, in the United States, so I think this assistance from European Union towards Ukraine will give some、uh, more encouragement to Ukraine Ukrainian、uh, administration and to、uh, stabilize.、Uh, indeed, I think this、uh, support from.、Uh, Average people、uh, within the, not only、uh, in the Ukraine and also within European member states.、Mm. So there is, of course, a quid pro quo regarding the position of Hungary. According to Orban, Hungary had received guarantees about billions of euros in suspended EU funds in return for lifting its veto on this issue, and there is also a control mechanism to guarantee that Hungary's money would not end up in Ukraine. What do you make of this arrangement? Do you think Mr. Orban has got whatever he wants? So far, this、uh, arrangement between the、uh, U- European Union and uh, uh, Hungary is just,、uh, I think,、uh, reported by Ukrainians、uh, by Hungarian side, but not yet from the、uh, U- European Union side.、Mm. Because, as we know,、uh, in the last、uh, EU summit on this、uh, issue of uh, uh, you know open the negotiation between European Union and uh, uh, Ukraine, at that time, certainly uh, it's. Uh, There, there was an arrangement between European Union and Hungary、uh, to get、uh, support from Hungary by,、uh, you know, release some uh, 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 some uh, financial assistance from European Union to Ukraine、uh, to Hungary. But、uh, this time, I think on this issue of the、uh, new budget、uh, for the 15、uh, billion euro、uh, towards Ukraine,、uh, even now.、Uh, The European Union side denied that、uh, there has been some、uh, arrangement between European Union and Hungary, but of course, I think that uh, uh, it's in the uh, demand uh, of uh, Hungary to get some more、uh, promise or compromise from European Union on this issue. Otherwise, it、uh, looks like uh, uh, Prime Minister Orbán、uh, has been failed to、uh, protect. The interests of Hungary. Well, of、mm. course, as we know, 
certainly there will be some, uh, there has been uh, some uh, compromise between European Union and uh, Hungary, because also you know once uh, uh, Hungary give up its uh, right of veto, certainly there should be some uh, uh, you know uh, benefits from the European Union side uh, providing to uh, Hungary. Otherwise, I think it's uh, it's uh, more difficult for both sides to get some more agreement. Hmm. So, like you mentioned uh, earlier, is this newly agreed package is aimed at keeping Ukraine's economy and a budget afloat. However, the issue regarding military funding is yet to be resolved. Now, actually, regarding military aid, there is a fund called European Peace Facility, which is outside the shared EU budget.、Uh, this particular facility is now needing some additional funding, but a proposed injection is being held up because of some、uh, disagreement or division between different、uh, EU member countries about how to reform the operation of this fund. So, what do you think is behind the、um, disagreement here? In regard of the uh, uh, European Peace、uh, Fund, as we know, in the background of the、uh, Ukrainian crisis,、uh, this peace fund、uh, got a lot of the、uh, importance to support、uh, militarily towards、uh, Ukraine. But so far,、uh, it looks like、uh, there are more disagreement among member states of the European Union. I think one of the reason is. As we know, for most of、uh, European countries, they need to try to get some balance between uh, providing uh, some more、uh, assistance, assistance to、uh, Ukraine and also to uh, uh, get some more guarantee for security on their own interests. I think another reason is、uh, still there are some different understanding about the uh, uh, perspective of the.、Uh, Uh, Ukrainian crisis and also、uh, the relations between Ukraine,、uh, European Union, and Ukraine, and also between European Union and Russia in the future. And、uh, another、uh, another reason I think that、uh, as we know uh, this um, so far,、uh, European Union as a whole、uh, provided 28 billion euro、uh, military assistance towards uh, Ukraine, uh, but at the same time there are very very、uh, big difference. Uh, between member states, for example,、uh, for Germany,、uh, for some other Nordic、uh, countries, they provided a lot of the、uh, military assistance towards、uh, Ukraine. But for some other member states of European Union, uh, certainly uh, they did、uh, they did feel、uh, to provide the military assistance towards、uh, Ukraine. So now, I think there are some more complaints from、uh, Germany or some other uh, you know uh, uh, contributors. Uh, on some other member states of the European Union, so different understanding of the、uh, security situation and the different contribution for、uh, various member states. I think that's a major reasons for this、uh, inefficiency of the、uh, peace fund in European Union.、Mm. So, in the case of the U.S., we understand the political delay to the U.S. aid for Ukraine is largely at the partisan level, and the former U.S. President Donald Trump is also exerting some kind of influence on this issue. So,、uh, do you think there is anything that makes the delay on the EU side somehow different from the U.S. scenario? So far, yes, there are some uh, obvious uh, difference between European Union and the United States. On the issue of、uh, providing more、uh, military or some other assistance towards、uh, Ukraine, also you know the major problem for European Union is it's not a nation state. It requires some more、uh, agreement between、uh, member states. So that's the reason why the Hungary and the Prime Minister Orbán,、uh, you know, play a more、uh, remarkable role on this、uh, issue. But I think that.、Uh, Now the problem for European Union is perhaps、uh, in this year, as we know, after the elections in some、uh, member states, and also after the elections in European Parliament, perhaps there will be some more、uh, there there will be some more similar situation happened in European Union. As we know now, most of the、uh, uh, far right wing、uh, political parties they try to get the, maybe a new approach. Towards the Ukrainian crisis, 
So I'm afraid that uh, after all mm. of the elections happened in European countries and the European Union institutions, uh, there will be some uh, big change on the current, uh, different from the current situation. Another, I think, very important uh, uh, factor is the uh, forthcoming uh, American uh, presidential election. Now, most of uh, European people, politicians, they are worried about they are worried about the uh, uh, comeback of uh, Mr. Trump. So, once the Trump in White House, and there will be some more leaders from uh, far right wing uh, parties in European countries. I think that there will be some uh, huge change uh, from the current situation. Mm, that was Professor Cui Hongjian from the Academy of Regional and Global Governance, Beijing Foreign Studies University. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Farmers are holding protests across Europe, clogging streets with their tractors, blocking ports, and pelting the European Parliament with eggs. Their long list of complaints and frustrations range from environmental regulation to excessive red tape. The most dramatic demonstrations have happened in France. However, similar actions have been seen in a host of countries, including Italy, Spain, Romania. Poland, Greece, Germany, Portugal, and the Netherlands. So joining us now on the line is Ina Tangen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. Hello, Ina. So actually, when we talk about say the farming industry, this particular sector actually just accounts for only 1.4 percent of the entire European Union's GDP. With that in mind. Why do you think European farmers are able to cause major disruptions to, say, public order, to streets? And by the way, why do you think it is in France that we have witnessed the most dramatic form of demonstrations? Well, it、um, might be seem small, but there are 8.7 million farmers out there throughout the EU,、mm. and in a、uh, land that is deeply divided between right, left and right. When you have people who are so dedicated to their cause. They can cause a lot of damage. I mean, last year in the Netherlands,、uh, they, due to the you know <laughs> efforts of the Farmers Party, the Farmers Citizen Movement, or Bergen Bergen Bing Bang Wagen Wagen BBB,、yeah. uh, is now the largest、uh, party in the Dutch Senate after not being existent. So yeah, there's a lot of political reasons out there, but there's also a lot of sympathy for. Uh, the farmers.、Um, you've seen a dramatic reduction in the number of farms uh, throughout uh, Europe. That's、uh, also mirrored in places like the United States,、uh, developed countries,、um, and they've been battling all sorts of things.、Uh, you know, the issue of inflation, energy, fertilizer costs, transport costs, and then on the other side, the governments have been trying to control the food costs. So they've been. They feel that they have been uh, unfairly uh, treated. That they cannot make a living. Uh, in an industry which they love, but which、uh, unfortunately the the economics don't favor them, especially、mm. small ones. Okay, so what about the France the French scenario? Why do you think it is in France that we have seen the most dramatic demonstrations? Well, the <laughs> the French are a little bit dramatic.、Uh, this isn't <laughs> the first time that、uh, you know you had strikes blocking the streets to、uh, Paris, and、um, you, know, you know we we see on a regular basis. Um, you know the idea of、uh, equality, liberty, fraternity turns into burning cars、uh, along the main streets of Paris,、um, and you know erecting blockades and things like this. So it's a unique form to uh, France. Um, the protest is there, but you know they they they, they do have legitimate、uh, grievances, and the government is trying to address them. The new、mm. agriculture minister said that she's going to safeguard them. There's going to be funds available for their、uh, social service needs. Uh, and that she's going to protect them against unfair、um, <clears throat> agricultural、uh, products coming into the country, and this is a kind of reference to the kind of mayhem that's been、uh, created by、uh, the situation in Ukraine,、um, where you know very very cheap produce is being、uh, pushed out of the country.、Uh, Poland、uh, has you know put an embargo on it. You have Polish farmers who are at the.、Uh, At the borders, making sure that、um, Ukrainian goods don't cross over.、Yeah. Um, 
because, you know, it's just the domino effect. If, if I'm having a hard time, I try to sell something, and unfortunately, it disrupts your economy. Yeah. So this is one thing you have alluded to a little bit already. Um, try to delve deeper into this question. To, frankly speaking, to what extent do you think those uh, protests by farmers are related to the war in Ukraine, directly or indirectly? Okay, no, I, I mean, it's it's very directly. If you start looking at energy costs, I mean, mm. um, one of the big issues in the Netherlands is the attacks on diesel. Um, but there's, you know, and, and those those are there. I mean, the you know, crops being uh, very uh, low-cost uh, crops being exported from Ukraine are obviously affecting things. Uh, but it's the energy and fertilizer. Remember, uh, between Russia and Ukraine, that was a good percentage, 60% of the world's fertilizer, uh, and a large portion of what was being used uh, in Europe. So they had to find other places uh, to get it. That included uh, more cost because of transport, etc. Um, you know, and remember, gasoline prices went through the roof, so did natural gas. Uh, they were hit on all ends, including insurance. I mean, you have lots of natural disasters, you know, horrible things have happened and in Germany and Greece and all over um, Europe. And, uh, and, you know, and of course, insurance goes up and they're hit with those costs as well. Mm-hmm. So then you have the indirect or not direct. I mean, things that aren't attributed directly to uh, the Ukrainian crisis. And those have to do with policies. Um, the EU has been, you know, putting pressure on farmers to have more of their land go fallow. In other words, not to, uh, you know, put it into use for crops. They say they want to, you know, keep it for biodiversity. They have environmental goals. Unfortunately, for farmers, that cuts into the income, and the subsidies they receive are not enough uh, to, to, you know, to support them. So, uh, in one of the compromises, uh, they have been able to get, uh, you know, the subsidies extended, but they can still use the land for a little period of time. And other things, they've said, okay, we won't impose. The uh, fuel tax uh, on diesel uh, mm. immediately. We'll put it off for some time. But this is none of this is really solving the problem. So you have a combination of red tape and um, you know actions like Ukraine uh, and the and the yeah. weather, uh, which aren't controllable. Yeah. So I know. I guess when we talk about say grievances, farmers' grievances against cheap um, agricultural imports from Ukraine in the wake of the war in that country. This issue does not necessarily unite um, the whole farmers community over there in the European Union. Maybe they can unite those Eastern European farmers, but not necessarily those in the Western European. But one thing in common among different countries is really farmers' anger over red tape and the EU's green policy. So do you think these issues will somehow enable farmers from different countries to speak with some kind of unity or even speak in one voice? Well, I, I was pointing to the, um, <clears throat> the issue in that, you know, what happened in the Netherlands uh, when the farmers got together. There's still a very minuscule number of people but because they have an issue and they're driven by their issue, and because everything else is so divided, they're able to capture a large amount of votes. Now, this June, we're coming up to an EU election, and uh, the 8.7 million farmers doesn't sound like a lot, but when they're all voting one way, and uh, there's, you know, there's proportional representation in the uh, EU parliament, and they have sympathy uh, from people. Uh, it's quite possible they could have a very large voice. Now, the danger here is that uh, the uh, you know alternative uh, alt-right parties, uh, like in Germany, the AFD, yeah. they have been trying, you know, they've been showing up these rallies and saying, we support you, you know, we don't want foreigners or their goods coming into our wonderful country. And this is resonating for them. So you could see uh, either, you know, uh, votes going towards AFD, or they form their own uh, political alliances and and uh, start to you know speak out very very clearly on what they want and starting cutting deals instead of just uh, burning car tires and blocking votes with tractors. Mm. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Ina Tengen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You're listening to World Today. I'm Dinghan in Beijing. 
European Union member countries have unanimously endorsed a landmark legislation governing the utilization of artificial intelligence. European Commissioner for the Internal Market, Mr. Thierry Breton, said the AI Act is historical and a world first. In December, EU lawmakers and member states reached a political agreement on the key provisions of the Act. But concerns from countries like France and Germany have prompted a new round of discussions on its real contents. The European Parliament is expected to vote on the finalized version of text in March or April before it is set to become a law. So, my colleague Zhao Ying is currently joining us in the studio. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. So, how significant is this particular development, and what does this EU? Industry chief official mean by calling it a historical first. Well, this is the first comprehensive AI legislation by a major bloc. Well, we know that there are some initiatives or agreements in other parts of the world regarding AI regulation and governance. For example, China unveiled the Global AI Governance Initiative last year, and the White House issued an executive order to manage the risks associated with AI. And on the international stage, Britain last year hosted the first AI Safety Summit, with participating nations reaching an agreement on the shared understanding of the opportunities and risks posed by AI. But the EU was actually the first major economic and political bloc to establish comprehensive legal frameworks for AI development and use. And this sets a precedent for other regions and countries, and I think will potentially shape the direction of global AI governance. And、um, I think hopefully this legislation could mark a turning point towards、uh, more responsible and accountable AI development worldwide, or at least pave the way for global、uh, discussions and conversations that can shape the future of AI governance and competition.、Hmm. So you have presented us with a bigger picture sense. But in a more detailed manner, what do you think are some of the really、uh, some of the key points covered in these laws? What are their major goals to be achieved? Well, based on、uh, some leaked documents of the final draft of this A,、uh, EU AI Act, AI systems are classified into four risk categories: unacceptable, high, moderate, and minimal, with different regulations for different categories. So, some strict、uh, stricter requirements will apply to higher risk AI, like、uh, facial recognition and critical infrastructure applications. And developers must explain how AI systems work and disclose data used in the training process of their models. And there will also be measures to ensure responsible data collection, use, and storage. And high-risk applications will also require human involvement to mitigate potential risks and bias. And as for the goals of these new rules,、uh, the EU wants to make sure that AI systems protect fundamental rights like privacy and information security,、uh, don't discriminate against anyone, and are used responsibly. And I think the EU、um, also seeks to. Uh, set global standards for AI that emphasize a balance between fostering innovation and safeguarding against potential harms, and and this、um, thereby establishing a comprehensive and forward-looking re- regulatory framework for、um, the AI technology. Okay, so the approve、um, this approval, as I understand, was delayed due to the concerns raised by some individual member countries like France and Germany. What do you make of their major concerns, and do we see any plans、um, being rolled out to address their 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 concerns during this negotiation? Well, the concerns were primarily related to finding a balance between fostering innovation and ensuring responsible use of AI. So, France and Germany,、um, alongside Austria, have、um, some concerns about potential limitations on the development of advanced AI models, which they argue could impede the creation of.、Uh, EU AI champions,、mm. and the negotiations、um, somehow addressed these concerns through protracted discussions and compromises. And、uh, the final wording of the rules reflects a nuanced approach 
that accommodates the need for companies to innovate within the EU while establishing crucial guidelines for the responsible use of AI. For instance, um, there's a provision allowing testing new technologies under lighter regulations uh, so that they can uh, foster innovation while managing risks. Okay. So there is a tech lobbying group called CCIA, which represents some industry giants like Amazon, Apple, Google, and Meta. It has expressed some concerns about the new AI rules potentially slowing down innovation. In your opinion, how do you think these rules is going to impact AI development and use in the EU? And do you think they will really end up stifling innovation? Well, I mean, it is crucial yet difficult to find the right balance between regulation and innovation.、Um, and it is true that complex regulations may create、um, administrative burdens and potentially slower、uh, the development cycles. But on the other hand, I think regulations can foster responsible development and attract investment. And、uh, some clearer rules and requirements can help build trust in AI systems among citizens and businesses, and this can encourage broader adoption and responsible use of AI technology. So I think overall speaking,、uh, regulation can potentially boost innovation in the long run. And I think we need to make it clear that、um, the ultimate goal of innovation and technological development is to benefit people. So. What's the point of innovation if it leads to harmful developments that threaten people's well-being and even our existence? And I think sometimes the swift development of new technology has primarily benefited benefited a privileged minority rather than the broader public. So I personally believe we should perhaps prioritize regulations to ensure safety and social well-being, even if this could mean fewer unicorns and billionaires. Yeah, I guess a level playing field is one key factor you cited earlier in your elaboration. And really, I think some people argue that these rules are favoring large tech companies with resources to comply. Whether any steps to to be taken will be taken to address this particular concern, I guess that's an open question. But thank you very much for joining us. That was my colleague Zhao Ying. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.